to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Today, my guest is Dr. Judd Brewer. He's a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist who specializes in treating addiction. He's known for combining modern science with ancient wisdom, and he teaches people how to get rid of unwanted behaviors, including everyday addictions like a smartphone addiction. He's written a new book called Unwinding Anxiety. It was an instant New York Times bestseller, and when you hear his straightforward approach to managing anxiety, you'll understand why his work's so popular. In today's episode, he shares how to recognize the habits that reinforce your anxiety and how to manage those anxious feelings in a healthy way once and for all. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Dr. Judd's strategies and explain how to start using them in your own life. So here's Dr. Judd Brewer and how taking these steps to manage your anxiety can help you become mentally stronger. Dr. Judd Brewer, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan of your book, Unwinding Anxiety. And I'm not surprised that it hit the New York Times bestseller list right out of the gate. Obviously, when you wrote it, you had no idea that we'd still be in the middle of this pandemic. But the timing couldn't have been better, however. Yes, unfortunately, that is true. (laughs) So I'm a therapist. And over the years, people often say things like, You must see so many people with depression. While I do see a lot of people with depression, anxiety is by far the number one one reason that people come into my therapy office. And I find that it's often undertreated and people wait a really long time before they get help for it. Did you find similar things? Yes. And just to add to that, you know, because I don't, I'm, my practice is set up so that I get reimbursed for prescribing medications, so I don't get to do a lot of therapy. Uh, my own anxiety started driving me to look for other ways to help people with theirs because when you look at medications, this there's this number, number needed to treat, you know, how many people you need to treat before one person benefits. And for medications, with the best medications out there, that is 5.2. So that means I have to treat five patients with medication before one of them shows a significant benefit. So I'm playing the medication lottery and I don't know what to do with the other 80%. So I was getting my own anxiety <laughs> with, with seeing all these folks with anxiety. I liked in the book when you said it's not necessarily research, it's me-search, right? <laughs> yes. When we're interested in something, it's usually because we have a personal interest in studying it and then writing about it. Before we jump into your book, I'd love to talk for a minute about medication for anxiety. We hear so many horror stories about people being prescribed benzos for anxiety. Then they end up feeling worse rather than better. What's your take on prescribing medication for anxiety in a way that works for them or in a way that's healthy? Yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned benzos because back when the SSRIs were first being developed in the 80s, this is when the Rolling Stones were singing about Mother's Little Helper, you know, with benzos. (laughs) She goes running to the shelter of Mother's Little Helper, whatever the lyric is. 
And so they were being prescribed like candy. And like you're pointing out their problems, they're no longer first line treatment for anxiety. If you look at the guidelines. And so folks have been turning to these newer class of medications, like the Prozacs, the uh, Zoloft's of the world. And those have this number needed to treat of, of 5.15. So following guidelines, I prescribe those medications. For some people, they can be very helpful and they're generally safe and relatively benign. Yet there aren't that many other treatment options that we have. Do you find that people with anxiety are hesitant to take medication because they think, what if I have side effects? They're anxious people. So then they're having all these thoughts about all the bad things that could happen if they take medication. I've had a number of patients who have expressed exactly what you're talking about. So then you came up with strategies that can treat anxiety without necessarily using medication, correct? Yes. Well, this was kind of a serendipitous thing. So I, you know, with my own anxiety, as somebody, anybody with anxiety can attest to, anxiety feels bad. We want to make that go away. So <laughs> I was trying to find my own anxiolytic. And the way that I do that is I go look at the research literature to see what I've missed. You know, maybe I slept through some class in medical school <laughs> about anxiety treatment as compared to the medications that I'd learned about. And the serendipity came in because my lab really focuses on habit change, how, how to help people change habits. We'd done really good work with, or I should say we'd found re really good results with, um, for example, developing app-based mindfulness training for smoking. You know, in the original study, the in-person study, we'd, we'd gotten five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. And then we'd gone on to show how that works in the brain with the app-based training with, uh, we had this app eat right now that got a 40% reduction in craving related eating. And with that program, people were saying, you know, can you make a program for anxiety? Cause I'm realizing that anxiety triggers my stress eating. And I, that's when it put that bug in my ear to go and look at the literature. And it turns out back in the eighties when the stones were singing and, you know, Eli Lilly or whatever the companies were, were making their medications uh, this guy, T, uh, Thomas Borkovec at Penn State was studying anxiety and he put forward this radical notion that anxiety could be driven in the same manner as any other habit. And when I saw that, my jaw dropped because I was like, I never thought about it that way. And I know something about habits. <laughs> so so that's when we, we developed this app-based mindfulness training for anxiety. And then of course did the studies on it because we wanted to see if it worked. Long story short, we did two, we've now done three clinical studies, but one with anxious physicians, we got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores. We did a study with people with generalized anxiety disorder and we got a 67% reduction. And here we could calculate the number needed to treat. So remember with medications, that's 5.2. So five people, one person benefits in this study, that number needed to treat was 1.6. So we were we were pretty happy with that. And that was actually what prompted me to think, oh, this could actually work. And and then, you know, as I was seeing this over and over and over in my clinic and in these studies, uh, that's what prompted me to write this book to help anybody understand their own anxiety and work with it. You did a great job. As a therapist, I learned a lot and I thought, oh, these things all really make sense. Something that I'll often see in my therapy office is I'll have a patient who comes in for the first time and maybe they suspect that their kid has ADHD. I'll have one person who just spent the last six months researching everything they could on ADHD because that's how they manage their anxiety. Mm -hmm. They conduct research on every study possible, every medication they can find. And they tell me all the side effects of it. And they have 101 different strategies that they've learned about to treat it. 
And then I'll have somebody else who comes in and maybe in a very similar situation where they think maybe their kid has ADHD, but they push that thought aside and they hope that it will just somehow get better on its own. So it's two very similar situations, but completely different reactions to something that could be Mm -hmm. anxiety provoking. So I liked about your book. So one of the things I liked about your book is when you talked about the habit loop, how we deal with anxiety and how it tends to reinforce our feelings over time. Can you explain that a bit? Yes. And you're describing two of these main things that our brains do. So any habits formed through what's called reinforcement learning, you know, basically if something's pleasant or feels good, our brain's going to learn, oh, do that again. If something's unpleasant, our brain's going to say, hey, make that go away. Do something to make it go away. So we reinforce things through positive and negative reinforcement. It goes all the way back to our survival days, which it was set up to help us remember where food is and remember where danger is so we could find food and avoid danger. So with these two things that you're describing, so the person that goes and looks everything up, uh, so worry as a mental behavior uh, can get positively reinforced because it makes us feel like we're in control. So the parent that looks up all the ADHD medication side effects, it makes them feel like they're in control because they're doing something. Now, them looking up all the side effects of an ADHD medication probably didn't solve their kid's ADHD. <laughs> but it may, may make them felt more empowered, like, oh, I can do something, even though they're not doing anything that's that's solving the problem. And that's often what our brains do. They say, well, this is bad. I should do something. It feels good to do something, even if doing something is is not really... Uh, is solving the problem. The second thing is this distraction. So negative reinforcement is about helping unpleasant things go away. And one thing that we can do in the short term is to distract ourselves. So if we're anxious, there's that trigger. We distract ourselves, there's the behavior. And then the reward is that we feel better for the moment, right? And so that's how any habit is formed, trigger, behavior, reward. And so we can see how the rewarding qualities of distraction feed back and drive that anxiety habit loop. So the next time we're anxious, our brain says, oh, I know what to do, distract yourself. And then we do it again. And then you show us how when we do that, we don't recognize when a reinforcer isn't helpful anymore. At first it's pleasant and then it's sort of neutral and then it's not fun anymore, but we keep doing it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So worry has a particular quality. When I ask my patients to really describe what they get from worrying, they say, nothing, you know, it just makes me more anxious. So that, you know, that, that quality of things, um, that we tend to set up these reinforcement pathways through some temporary, uh, reward, but it actually can lead to more negative consequences in the long run. So if we distract ourselves, we're not solving the anxiety. And especially if we do things like drinking alcohol, I see this a lot. A lot of my patients have uh, primarily have anxiety and anxiety disorder, and then they drink alcohol to you know distract themselves or make themselves feel better. And then they come in because they've got comorbid substance use on top of you know or alcohol use on top of their anxiety, and they haven't solved either one. They've just made the problem worse. So if we're not able to really recognize what the core root of the problem is, you know, think of it as we get cut. We just put a bunch of Band-Aids on it. And those Band-Aids can feel better for a moment or at least make it 
make us not look at the open wound, but then that wound gets infected and things get worse. And I think that's the way uh, we often approach things is we, we reach for the thing that's closest to us that makes us feel better, yet we don't pay attention and ask the question, is this actually helping or is this just giving me some brief relief and then ultimately going to make things worse in the long run? So that's why you talk so much about mindfulness and how it's simply being aware of our habits. So if I'm stressed out and I reach for a piece of cake and then I might not realize that three pieces of cake later, I actually feel worse rather than better. And just paying attention to what we reach for when we feel anxious and how we feel can be one of the best solutions, right? Yeah, that's what I love about awareness is, you know, it's it's good at the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good at the end. And I say at the beginning because it can help us start to identify these habit loops that we're stuck in. If we don't identify them, we can't work with them. It's good in the middle because it helps us see oh, you know, am I actually getting anything from worrying or is it just, you know, perpetuating the problem? Is worrying feeding back and making me more anxious? That actually taps into these reward centers in our brain, which then update the reward value of worrying. Oh, it's not as good as I thought. We start to become disenchanted or less excited to worry. And then it's also good at the end because awareness itself, especially if we tap into these natural intrinsic qualities of curiosity, Curiosity itself feels better than an anxiety. And I'll highlight that a little bit. Curiosity feels better in a particular way. So if we're anxious, anxiety tends to make us feel closed down, contracted, you know, tightened into a little ball. Curiosity does the opposite. It, it opens us up. It um, helps us feel more expanded. So you can't be closed and open at the same time. They're binary opposites. So if we're anxious, we can actually get curious in that moment. And in that moment, start to open up. So good at the beginning, good in the middle, and good at the end. So how do we become more curious in the moment? So my anxiety spikes and I normally reach for something, whether it's a, my phone or food. What could I do instead? How do I get curious and raise my self-awareness? Yes, there are a bunch of ways to do this. And that's why I dedicated about a third of the book to some, some simple practices that people can do. For example... You know, if we're tightening down into anxiety, we can first start to recognize it and and notice if our habitual response is, oh no. So for example, I have a lot of patients who wake up in the morning, they feel anxious and then they go, oh no. And they start worrying about why they're anxious and they're just making it worse. So there, they can start to inject a little bit of curiosity. And instead of going, oh no, they can go, oh. And that, oh, is is kind of this quality of experience where we're just getting curious about what's happening. And I, um, I like, I, in the book, I talk about help, helping people develop a mantra. And so, so that, oh, uh, for, for a lot of us in the Western world, when we're cur- naturally curious about something, it comes in the form of, hmm, you know, somebody says, oh, um, you know, is it this or that? And you're like, hmm, I don't know. That, hmm, awakens our natural embodied curiosity. And so whether it's, oh, or hmm, that if we find what it is that we naturally do when we're curious, we can actually tap into that when we're not curious and and kind of pull that up as a mantra so that it helps awaken the curiosity that we already have. Does that make sense? It does. So let's say I notice when I get anxiety, my heart starts to race, my stomach feels tight. What do I do then after I notice that happening? Yeah. So the first thing there, I like to have people kind of ground themselves. So if somebody like you're talking about, you know, heart starts racing, 
sometimes the extreme form of that is, you know, we get a full, full-blown panic attack. But even if we're not, not having full-blown panic, um, when we're starting to get tightened up with a little bit of anxiety, it can be harder for us to use our thinking part of our brain. So the first thing I do is have people ground themselves in their present moment experience. And one of my favorite practices for that, well, two, I'll give two. One is just to simply have somebody pay attention to their feet. And I had had somebody describe this to me himself. He said, I just tell myself, feel my feet. And the idea there is to just ground yourself in your present moment experience and even get curious, like, okay, which foot feels warmer than the other foot? right? doesn't matter which one or if they're the exact same temperature. But if we ask that question, it helps ground us in our present moment. It helps us start to awaken that curiosity. And that groundedness then can help us start to inject more curiosity into the the anxiety itself. And we can start to ask, oh, okay, what does this anxiety feel like in my body? Is it tightness? Is it heat? Is it restlessness? And then we can ask questions like, oh, So what equals the anxiety? Is it the tightness? You know, is it just tightness that makes anxiety? Well, when I, when I uh, work out and I lift weights, there's tightness there. So maybe it's not tightness. Is it restlessness? Well, I'm restless when I'm excited. So it can't be. And we can start to just look at the components of what makes up anxiety in our body with a true curiosity and start to see, okay, it's this component. It's this component. It's this. And as we see each of those, we start to see, oh, wait a minute, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. And as we bring that curious awareness to them, we also start to see, oh, these are constantly changing. And so we can see, oh, it's not like I'm this anxious person that's always going to be like this. It's, oh, there are these physical sensations that I'm interpreting as anxiety. And if I just bring awareness to them, they're already changing as I get curious about them. Do you find that most of us are really quick to do anything we can to feel better? We're afraid of being uncomfortable. So the moment we feel those physical symptoms, we'll do just about anything to escape it. A hundred percent. And I think today's society really reinforces that, you know, so when our computer isn't booting up in a quarter of a second, we're like, man, why is this computer so slow? You know, or if we're at a stoplight and the stoplight's red for 30 seconds, we suddenly pull out our phone to distract ourselves because for some reason we can't tolerate just sitting at a stoplight for 30 seconds. So I think today's society is absolutely perpetuating that whole thing about immediate gratification and immediate distraction whenever we're uncomfortable. In your book, early on, you talk about how everybody has an addiction. And just like you then say in your book, I'm thinking, yeah, no, I don't really have an addiction. And then the more you talk about it, the more you say, no, there's something you reach for when you're anxious. (laughs) And like most people, I reach for my phone. Yes. Yes. These these weapons of mass distraction, you know, and and I learned in residency, the simple definition of addiction, which is continued use despite adverse consequences, right? So this is where we can look at our own experience and see, you know, is there anything that I'm doing that's actually leading to adverse consequences? As a concrete example, texting while driving has now been shown to be more dangerous than drunk driving. And so there's a continued use of the phone despite adverse consequences as one concrete example. Right. And who among us doesn't do something like taking out our phones when we're standing in line or doing something just to relieve those feelings of distress because it's a quick and easy way to do it. But at the same time, I think we then lose confidence in our ability to cope with stress when we do everything we can to escape it all the time. 
Do most people know what triggers their anxiety or do they say, I don't know, I have no idea. I just feel anxious all the time. You know, I think that more people can't identify the trigger for their anxiety than can. And at least in, I'm thinking through my clinic patients, it, you know, it tends to just show up <laughs> unannounced, uh, unwelcome. <laughs> now, I would say with stress, you know, stress is often triggered by a to-do list or some specific precipitant, but with anxiety, it tends to just show up. Now, the good news there is we don't have to, it doesn't even matter what triggers anxiety because that's not what drives more anxiety. It's what we do about the anxiety in the moment that feeds back and drives it more. Yes, I like that. So then when we notice the physiological symptoms, pay attention, figure out, be curious about what we're experiencing in the moment. And then what do we do after that? Once we notice, okay, my I'm thinking about whether my left foot or my right foot feels warmer, then what? Well, the nice thing about this is, you know, this, this awareness is good at the beginning, good at the middle and good at the end. The awareness itself has rewarding qualities. When we're curious, you know, it feels better than anxiety. And so if we keep injecting that curiosity, uh, we can do two things. One is we learn how we react to the anxiety. So we can start to see the, you know, oh, I'm reaching for my phone or I'm reaching for some food or whatever. And we cannot step into those distraction habit loops. Another thing we can do is start to see that anxiety, uh, we can, uh, I'll put it this way, we can change our relationship to the anxiety. So those physical sensations, when they come up, we often react to them and, and uh, we resist them or we, you know, we do, we do these, try to suppress them or whatever. Instead of trying to change those sensations, because what we resist persists, instead of trying to change that, we can start to get curious and just kind of dance with those sensations instead. And in the process, we can learn, oh, I can actually change my relationship with anxiety. When it comes up, I can be with these physical sensations. I can be with these emotions. I can be with these thoughts instead of having to do something about them. So th ironically, the thing to do is learning to be with those sensations by changing our relationship instead of resisting, just welcoming them in and saying, oh, here's this. Oh, here's that. And then the being becomes the doing. There's nothing else to do in that moment. Right. And then when we take the power away from it, it doesn't feel so scary anymore. It feels like it's not such a big deal. When I was a kid, I absolutely hated school. I was a really anxious kid, like to the point where I vomited when I had to go to school. I hated it with a passion. The Simpsons were on on Sunday night. So when the Simpsons came on, I knew it was almost time to go to bed and I had to go to school the next day. So even as an adult, I don't have to go to school anymore. But when I hear the Simpsons theme song, my stomach does a flip-flop. And I have a nephew who's learned this. So he finds great joy in playing the Simpsons theme song <laughs> over and over again. And it's at the point, and it's at this point in my life, I can kind of laugh about it. But even just talking about it right now, I can yeah. feel myself breaking out into a sweat, which is ridiculous. But now I'm a therapist. I don't go to school anymore. It's not scary, but... And I can just sit with those feelings and think that's ridiculous that at this age, I still have that physiological response to it. But if I wasn't a therapist, if I had a job that I hated, I think on Sunday nights, I'd still feel that awful every time I heard the Simpsons theme song. But when you take the power away and you just think, OK, this is what's happening and why it's happening, it's not necessarily a huge bother. It doesn't really affect my life anymore. It's just something I can think, oh, there it is. Yeah. Well, what a great example. And you're also, you're modeling this beautifully, which is 
oh, there's my brain doing its conditioned thing. No danger here. I don't have to go to school. And wow, isn't that, isn't that bizarre that my brain still does this as an adult? <laughs> right. It's been a long time since I've been in the third grade. But that was so ingrained in me as a kid that all these years later, it still happens. Yeah, wow. And I, I like that one of your points in the book, too, is about not simply swapping one bad habit for another. If someone says, I'm stressed out and I reach for a cigarette, don't just say, okay, next time I'm stressed out, I'll reach for a piece of cake because that doesn't do us any good. It doesn't teach us to manage our anxiety. We're just swapping one bad habit for another. Mm -hmm. Do you find that if people replace that habit with mindfulness, that it works better instead of saying, I'm going to reach for candy or a piece of cake instead? I do. And for two reasons. One is that the, like, if we reach for cake, it can drive the same habit forming mechanism where we have to replace one thing with the other. And that feeling of, oh, I should eat some cake now has this driven, anxious, restless quality that ironically shares the same, same characteristics as anxiety itself. When we bring awareness and curiosity in, it, curiosity feels, you know, it feels more open. It feels more expanded. So not only does it feel better than needing to replace it with something external like eating cake, but it also comes in from an internal source. So we never become habituated to it. We never, it's not like we, we become uh, habituated to curiosity itself. It's, it just actually builds on itself. The more we realize how great curiosity feels, the more curious we become. I like that. I liked your story in your book about somebody who smoked cigarettes. And when he became more mindful about how much he enjoyed smoking during the day, he said he didn't actually enjoy any of the cigarettes he smoked. It was just his go-to habit when he felt stressed out or anxious. Mm -hmm. And then I like the idea that if we just replace that with mindfulness, it doesn't happen. Yeah, absolutely. That we don't get sick of it over time. Instead, it actually grows. Yes. That's the beauty of, you know, I, I talk about these in my book as these bigger, better offers. You know, if we can find something that is intrinsically rewarding that grows over time, then <laughs> game on, you know, no side effects. And it's not just curiosity, but I talk in the book about kindness. So imagine if we could inject more kindness into the world. Boy, we need that right now. <laughs> and that also feels open and expanded and helps us feel more connected with others than, you know, than feeling closed down or, or closing off or, you know, having more of an in-group mentality. I love that part of the book too, talking about kindness, because you're right, we do need more kindness in the world and we can cultivate it in our own minds. And then it encourages us to go out there and act like a kind person. One of the things I wanted to talk about was how you talked about our tendency to sometimes beat ourselves up when we make a mistake and how that becomes a problem. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yes, I see this a ton. You probably see this as well. It, it, my patients, you know, they're so, I, I can think of a gazillion, but I'm thinking of one in particular who was working with binge eating disorder and, and she didn't like how she looked. And so every time she'd look in the mirror, she would judge herself, you know, and, and say something not nice to herself. And so we can be triggered to be self-judgmental if we do something that didn't go as well as we wanted to, or if we don't like how we look or you know, if we don't like how something came out, you know, something that we did, we can get in these habits of beating ourselves up. And at the same time, if we don't recognize how unrewarding it is to beat ourselves up, 
then we're going to just keep doing them. It's going to become a habit. And in fact, there can be these rewarding qualities where it's like, well, I can't change the outcome, but I can beat myself up as a way to think that I'm going to make, you know, flag, flog myself into doing a better job next time. Ironically, when we beat ourselves up, we're not actually open to growth in those moments because we're kind of closed down, we're locked in, and we're focused on beating ourselves up. So here we can replace self-judgment with self-kindness. And we can not only notice how good it feels to be kind to ourselves, but that kindness opens us up so we can move into what Carol Dweck calls growth mindset. So we can actually learn from the situation and maybe you know change things uh, for next time. But we're at a much better place to be able to do that if we're kind to ourselves. I like the part in your book where you said you can't think yourself out of a bad habit. So many people beat themselves up or they think that it's a lack of willpower when they can't yeah. change. And they think, I just, I just got to think positive. No, that's not going to change anything, right? No, that's not how our brains work. <laughs> it'd be, now, don't get me wrong. It'd be great if it was, because you could imagine I'd have one patient visits, as in my patients would come in, I would tell them, stop smoking, and they would just think their way out of it and stop overeating and they would think their way out of it, stop being anxious, stop worrying, and they would think their way out of it. So they'd walk in, I would tell them to stop, they would stop, and then I would be hopefully be out of a job pretty quickly. <laughs> but that's not how it works. That's not how our brains work. But unfortunately, I see that happening a lot. Somebody's primary care physician will say to them, you really need to stop smoking because it's bad for you. And then the person ends up in my therapy office weeks later and they're thinking, I'm a loser. I can't quit smoking. Obviously, they know it's bad for them. Nobody smokes cigarettes and thinks this is healthy. But when their doctor says, you have to stop doing this, it's affecting your health. They don't necessarily know how to quit and they feel bad and they beat themselves up for not being able to quit. Maybe they've been thinking, trying to think themselves out of it and they think, oh, if I just wake up tomorrow, I'll have the willpower and this will magically work. So I'm glad you're offering alternatives to people who want to change their habits and who want to manage their anxiety better. Yeah, you know, willpower has been overhyped for literally uh, centuries. You know, there was there was a relief on the Parthenon in ancient Greece where they depicted this rider and the horse, you know, the rider being reason and the horse being passion. So that's how long we've been wanting to hold on to this idea <laughs> that willpower is the way to go. And I have to say the only place that it's beneficial is if you're, if you own a, a, a diet program where you're telling people that they should use willpower and then you blame it on them when they fail the program so that they have to sign up for another year. Uh, I don't know how those folks uh, sleep at night, but anyway, that's, <laughs> that's how it goes. Well, hopefully that's a relief to people who are listening to know it's not a character flaw or a lack of willpower when they can't quit a bad habit. And you make it really clear in your book. I like that you talked about how modern day society sets us up for really bad habits and things like technology know how to get to our brains to make them more addictive. They do. And again, the good news is we, if we can learn how our minds work, we can work with our minds. So we don't need some to pay some program to do it for us. We can do it ourselves. It's, it's really true. And it's just about learning how our brains work. Well, your book, Unwinding Anxiety, is a great resource. I hope everybody goes out and picks up a copy. I know I learned a lot and I suspect other people will too, whether they're struggling with anxiety or they just have some bad habits that they want to change or they want to learn more about how the brain works. You do a great job of breaking it down into really simple, easy to understand ways. So thank you for that. Mm, well, thank you. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate your wisdom. <laughs> My pleasure. Welcome to The Therapist Take. 
This is a part of the show where I break down some of my favorite strategies from the interview and explain how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Dr. Judd's strategies you can start using right away. Number one, acknowledge the habits that you use to cope with anxiety. Whether you distract yourself from anxiety by picking up your phone or you research and plan everything in an attempt to feel more in control, you have some go-to habits you use when you feel anxious. Dr. Judd says that many of those habits can be helpful in the moment or in moderate doses. But when we become dependent on them and we turn to them at the first sign of discomfort, they're not helpful anymore. There's an old saying that says, what you resist tends to persist. That's true when it comes to resisting uncomfortable emotions. Resisting uncomfortable emotions causes us to reach for bad habits. So pay attention to the habits you engage in when you're feeling anxious. Do you grab your smartphone the second you have a free moment? Do you avoid things that cause anxiety? Do you plan and research everything to no end? Becoming more aware of how you cope with anxiety can be a good first step in breaking the patterns that perpetuate the cycle. Number two, get curious about what anxiety feels like. Sometimes people think mindfulness involves meditating or something that's really complicated. But Dr. Judd says all you have to do is just get curious. Pay attention to the way anxiety causes you to feel. Anxiety is often felt physically. Your heart might beat fast or you might feel a little physically ill. But those things are tolerable. Paying attention to those things is a great way to be mindful, which just simply means being present in the moment rather than worrying about the future or rehashing something that already happened in the past. So simply pay attention to what's going on in your body or with your thoughts. You might discover that anxiety is a little uncomfortable, but more tolerable than you thought. Number three, replace self-judgment with self-kindness. Dr. Judd shared how we often judge ourselves for feeling bad, and that makes us feel even worse. For example, if you're nervous about an upcoming social event, you might tell yourself that you're stupid for being anxious. Well, it's not the anxious feelings that are bad for you. It's the harsh criticism you give yourself for being anxious that's actually harmful. So the next time you recognize that you're being too hard on yourself, respond with self-kindness. Ask yourself, what would I say to a friend who said this about themselves? You'd likely have some wise, compassionate words. Try giving yourself those same kind words. So those are three of Dr. Judd's strategies that I highly recommend. Acknowledge the habits you use to cope with anxiety. Get curious about what anxiety feels like. And replace self-judgment with self-kindness. To learn more about Dr. Judd's strategies for managing anxiety, check out his book, Unwinding Anxiety. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.